technology is one support. I think it's it's an important one, but I think that like um, ultimately it's a, it's a gigantic system that we have to consider for for teachers and, and, and their curriculum development and whether they can integrate technology into the the classroom. As voices the professor. Teachers' voices. Hello everyone and welcome to this bonus episode of the EdTech podcast in collaboration with Teachers Voices with guest host Nina Alonso and in partnership with Bold, the digital platform on learning and development. Our next guest, Jason Jeep, has done extensive research on engaged learning that can happen using digital technology. Jason joined us from Seattle in the US and we asked him about his work on co-design and collaboration within EdTech. I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington at the Information School, and part of what I study is families and technology and the collaboration that occurs between uh, units within the family, uh, intergenerational between ch usually children and their parents. I want to understand new ways of learning, new kinds of collaborations that can occur in the families. Um, and then I also investigate what's going on in the home right now, like right, what current technologies teach us about collaboration. So I might, I've studied a lot about Pokemon Go, uh, Animal Crossing, digital games. We've looked a lot at searching technologies, how online searching supports collaboration in families. Much of Jason's research explores how adults partner with children to design new technology for children. I asked Jason to explain about how online co-design works. So I have a group of children that I work with called Kids Team. And in Kids Team, we work with children twice a week after school um, for an entire year, so an entire school year. So it's about 50 or 60 sessions that I co-design with these children. And when I co-design, sometimes I'll build the new technologies. Before COVID occurred, uh, we would come to my lab and we would actually work and partner with children on some of the designs, sometimes learning technologies and sometimes new ideas, or sometimes it's an assessment of what's going on. Um, but we would work very closely with the children as design partners. Uh, and in a, when we consider design partners uh, with adults and children, we look at it in terms of this equitable and equal partnership that can occur. It's not always perfect, um, but what we see is that we see a lot of relationship building. We see a lot of design by doing We see a lot of idea generation and mixing, and we see a lot of like children and adults co-facilitating the sessions in this case. So uh, when COVID hit, it really did, it didn't change the dynamics too much in terms of those relationships that we had built with kids already. But what did change was the medium, like we wouldn't see children in person anymore. So when we talk about online co-design, We took our lab model and decided to go online for about two years, given the pandemic, and we used all sorts of technologies, but mostly Zoom and mostly Google Slides as a way to communicate with the children. But um, now that COVID is sort of, I, I'm, it's not completely disappeared, but it's changing, uh, we've gone to a hybrid model where now we are both online and in-person. So our lab is trying to think about the same physical question that a lot of teachers deal with. I was a teacher for six years so before I became a professor. 
uh, I was a high school teacher, so I definitely understand the sort of socialization and the movement and physicality of the classroom that feels lost when we go online completely. We've been trying to figure out, well, can we design tools that allow a little bit more physicality when it comes to these interactions? So part of the research that we've been doing uh, with a group of professors at Pratt Institute and the University of Colorado Boulder has been to really understand how little tabletop robots can help us shape in-person interactions. So this is all sort of just pilot, like exploratory work, but we've been trying to figure out whether or not we can use little tiny robots that are just that with wheels and lights and sounds. Thanks to the pandemic, remote teaching has become the new normal for so many Despite its benefits, online learning has presented teachers and families with some challenges, especially around collaboration and physical play. The blending of technology, creative activities and playful interaction is something that Jason has been researching. Here he is again. We've been trying to change a lot of our techniques online to also include physicality, to also include a lot of children's motions and movements, especially given that sitting down on the on the on the chair for an hour, like sometimes we had to say, all right, we're gonna go, like quickly we're gonna do raise our hands instead of using Zoom like voting. We're gonna use like colors. We're gonna use different ways to move around. So it's both it's kind of interesting. It's both the design of new products to help people interact online together through physical means, say the robots, but it's also the methods that we use to design those robots and other things as well that had to also end up being more physical in that sense too, even online. I asked Jason about the role of teachers in trying to engage students in working collaboratively with the support of technology. Part of the things that I really appreciate about teachers Uh, is that when the pandemic happened, a lot of them got very creative, right? Despite the problems with technology, right? So um, there's a lot of there's a lot we study in terms of in human computer interaction about how other cultures outside Western society sort of build their own technologies and build their own kind of ways of learning and build their own kinds of DIY, and they are incredibly resourceful. Um, like if you look at like There have been studies in, in Kenya that look at how DIY makers just, just come up with brand new ideas that couldn't come from the West because they were sort of like working under pressure in this case. I think it's just more about the creativity of the teachers that I think is going to be ultimately more important than the actual technology because the problem is, is that the infrastructure may not work. Um, but ultimately, I think it's the designer of, you know, of the curriculum of, of what they do um, that matters more, what they can figure out as well. So I have to give a lot of credit to teachers. And I think really, it's going to be about more importantly, how we train teachers to feel more to, or not even train, but even give teachers the ability and permission to be creative with the tools that we give them in a sense, right? So I think it's kind of all of that. I, I kind of wish I could say like, yeah, like all the technology, we build it, it's going to be great. But that's not what we find. Actually, we find more, it's, it's more about like whether uh, teachers have the autonomy to be creative with the technologies that they're given at that point. But oftentimes, we don't give teachers enough autonomy. Uh, we don't give them enough chance to be creative with what, what, what resources they have, whether it's a lot or very little in this case. Thanks to Jason Jeep for his insights. 
what Jason said about the importance of creating good conditions that allow teachers to be creative with technology in education and make the most of their circumstances and resources is something that our next guest knows well about. Education technology might be an exciting prospect for well-resourced schools with good internet infrastructure. But how can it be harnessed in more challenging teaching environments? To find more about this, Sophia and I spoke with Cohen Teamers. Cohen is a former teacher, author, researcher, and public speaker who has lots of experience with digital innovation, climate change education, and has funded several global educational projects. We asked him how he went about establishing the foundations for online teaching in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. So the Kakuma refugee camp is the second largest in Africa. It has about 200,000 refugees and it's uh, people who are being displaced and fled from war and hunger from South Sudan, Burundi, uh, Somalia and different countries basically in Africa. And the refugees in most cases get uh, food and drinks once a day and all, everything is managed by the UN. So uh, it's not by the government from Kenya, but by the UN. It's a secure environment uh, in cr contrast to another big camp in Kenya, which is Dadaab, which is not really that secure as Kakuma. Yeah. Schools have like 200 students in one classroom. Uh, there's big holes in the, in the classroom walls. The teachers are not really trained to teach students. They're just people willing to instruct students, but without decent training. 80% of the, the teachers didn't have any teacher training. And uh, 80% of the teachers are refugees themselves. And if I think about refugee camps, I always think about people arriving there. But the camp has been there for like 30 years. And so many people have been born in the camp. So many people don't know the life outside the refugee camp. Cohen described how he started this project when he was a teacher in Belgium and contacted Moses, a refugee from the Kakuma camp. So I was once able to connect with a refugee in the Kakuma uh, camp through Skype. And I promised uh, Moses, that was his name, to help him to increase the level of education. But I was also quite naive because I thought that the schools would have been equipped with at least one room with uh, laptops and internet connection. But it took me five years to establish a decent internet connection. And I sent my own laptop to the camp And once we were equipped, I started to teach the refugees over there. But after a while, I noticed that I was not able to do it myself because of the, the huge uh, volume of students. And many teachers globally wanted to help and started to teach through this infrastructure themselves. And then in 2020, we were able to go to the camp for the very first time to meet all of those people we have been seeing on the screen and we built our own school and established a formal partnership with the UN. Cohen explained how this impressive progress was made possible in terms of facilities and connectivity, but also the creativity that was needed to make digital learning happen in an environment with quite adverse conditions. So in the first stage, we had just one computer 
in a room of 200 refugees being connected with the teacher somewhere uh, in the world. And now we, with our own school, uh, we managed to get 100 laptops to this room. And this offers a huge amount of, of new opportunities. When I arrived in the camp, every refugee had one pencil and there was one textbook for every 10 students. But now the refugees are able to use laptops and learn about the world through YouTube. And we even did coding classes. So we had refugees creating uh, small programs and software and apps and websites. So we did a lot throughout the past years. But also teacher training. Teachers have, have been able uh, to be trained. We worked with the uh, University of Nairobi. So we were able to do a lot uh, because of the large amount of laptops in the camp. So I really like innovations and I noticed that there are solar suitcases and those are suitcases with solar panels and batteries and they give one classroom free electricity for one day. So they allowed us to charge the laptops. And then we were able to use the internet from the UN. But um, yeah, you may think about the internet connection in your own house, in your own uh, living room. But it's very different over there. It's really, really expensive. So uh, broadband internet costs as a cost of thousands of euros a month. So they're also using 4G bundles very often. And sometimes we are using those. So it's really, really tricky. Even after like seven years, it's still very tricky. Um, but still, we always we find new ways to make it happen, basically. Basic connectivity is really important, but teachers still need to maintain their usual agility in responding to situations at hand, as Cohen Timers explains. I think because of COVID, everybody knows how it is to learn on a distance through technology. I think it has a lot of value, but one has to make sure that it's being used in a, in a proper way. So what we found out is that virtual interactions are really powerful, but it also is not that easy at all times. And so we also shift to other approaches. So I think you always have to take a look at the circumstances and then have to decide on the technology you will be using And if it's not really making a lot of sense uh, in certain scenarios to have virtual interactions, you have to shift to other pedagogical approaches, I think. And that is what we have been doing throughout the past months as well. So if there's no internet, you still want to use the technology uh, to improve the learning curve of the students. And there's no internet in the schools for quite a lot of time basically. So very frequently there's no internet and then you have to be able to shift to other approaches. So making sure that the students are able to get to use uh, the laptop. But also we found new technology, which is called the Rachel device, which makes internet connection accessible offline. So that's one small device, which has all of the TED Talks and Wikipedia and a lot of digital handbooks 
So it, when there's no virtual interaction and no internet connection, we make sure that the students are able to access those uh, Rachel devices and still they are able to learn independently. Finally, Cohen commented on an additional dimension that this project has incorporated, involving students from different parts of the world in exchanging insights with the students in the Kakuma camp, something that has been enriching for all participants. And it's really, really interesting when you involve students in another country so that there is some kind of an intercultural exchange between the students from, I don't know, from Belgium, Canada, New Zealand, with the refugees in Kakuma. And interestingly, so I launched this project to make sure that we give free knowledge to the refugees. But something magic happened there. We noticed that the refugees started to, to talk about their own lives to students in other countries. And there was a real strong mutual appreciation after those calls. And we noticed that they got a very fair perspective about being a refugee. So this became our best way to fight polarization because all you know about refugees comes from television and, and newspapers. But when you are able to have like a direct connection and a chat with the refugees, that really changes your mindset and grows uh, the, the, the amount of appreciation for other human beings. Basically. Thank you for listening to Teachers Voices and to the EdTech Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more about the teachers featured and all the other guests on bold.expert and on the EdTech Podcast website, which is uh, theedtechpodcast.com, where you'll find all of our show notes. Please don't forget to follow us and engage with us in conversations, sending your feedback and suggestions by email podcastteachersvoices at gmail.com and uh, theedtechpodcast at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Uh, Nina and I had fun putting this together when we met in Bristol. We're back with the next episode immediately so you can jump across to uh, the EdTech podcast to hear from Maureen Dunn, the neurodiversity lead at Lego Foundation. Um, so yeah, have a wonderful week and see you next time. Bye.